The reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and can be found on page 1114 of the Church Bibles. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Whenever I speak, uh, whoever's leading the service always says, I heard this one in the 9.30 service, and it's really good. And it's very annoying because, um, you know, it puts pressure on and expectations. That being said, I heard Linda's service in the 9.30. It's very good. So (laughs) so I'm going to invite her up now. (laughs) Doesn't mean I don't still need prayer. Yes. (laughs) Lord God. Thank you for Linda. Thank you for the message which she has brought with her this morning out of her study of your word, the words that Paul wrote to the church in Philippia. We pray that you will speak through her and that we would have receptive ears to hear and a receptive heart. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm not sure you can hear me, can you? I did switch myself on. Are you okay, Jeff? Definitely on here. Can you hear me all right? Okay. Can I give you that, just so that I don't walk off with this at the end? Thanks. Just before we get to the reflections, there's something I'd just like to mention to you. It's been great to welcome Joanna as a new member of the family. Um, She's joined us here in Camborne, and we hope she'll stay for many years. But, of course, people leave us as well. And I wanted to just let you know that one of our long-standing members of the congregation has recently left us. Um, Some of you will perhaps remember Margaret Reardon, who was, until very recently, a resident at Cavendish Court. If you don't remember what she looked like, well, she was a very, very elderly lady in her mid-90s. 
And she faithfully, until just a few weeks ago, came through this door and sat somewhere over there with her walker. She was always immaculately dressed with white hair. And if it was possible, Peter, at the back, to go to the welcome slide at the very beginning of the service, can we do that? Just flick back to the welcome slide. Anybody over there? Yeah, we go. Takes time. Okay, just the, the first one as we came in. There she is, pretty in pink. The second photograph from the left. She is no longer able to live in Cavendish Court. She needs a greater level of support, so she's moved to a, another care home. And that means that she can't come here and she can't take part in the Cavendish Court Fellowship. So I just wanted to note that she has left this congregation and moved on. And I have a card here, which if those of you who knew her would like to sign, she would find uh, a very welcome remembrance. When we look at the very elderly members of our congregation, we don't always see some of the things that they have been in their past. We don't always value and appreciate the great wealth of wisdom and experience that they have. And I'd just like to let you know that Margaret Reardon, during the Second World War, was one of the team that worked as part of the Bletchley Project. She was actually receiving messages that could then be decoded and subsequently led to a shortening of the war through cracking the Enigma code. We never knew that, did we? After that, she spent about 35 years with her husband in various countries in Africa, in Asia, in the Pacific, and in the Caribbean. Her husband was in the colonial service, and part of his role was to encourage countries towards their independence. And at his side, Margaret was somebody who was locally involved in clinics, in education projects, She served as she could. Did you know that? No. And I just want to give you a sense of a life that was full, full of service, because that for me is an example of Jesus' life, full of service. And it would be good if we could celebrate that perhaps more than we do sometimes. So here's a card just for us to sign if you knew Margaret and want to wish her well in her new home. And it's not an easy thing to do at that stage of life to move. And if you want to listen to her experiences about Bletchley, then go on the Bletchley Park website. There's an audio um, account of her experiences. And if you want to read about her life, then read her book, An Unexpected Journey about which she spoke at the Camborne Library just a few weeks ago, as well as at Camborne Court. A life of some humility and servanthood, a life from which we can learn. So, a new season, season of Advent, a new series based in Philippians. And we might ask ourselves, well, why, why would we want to look at this letter of Paul to the Philippian church? Well... Paul's letter to the Christian church in the city of Philippi contains truth and guidance that are relevant for any church in any age. And actually, as we go on, we might be surprised to discern an unexpected parallel between the Philippian church in the first century and Camborne church here today in 2015. 
And Paul's letter also contains themes that are very relevant to this Advent season as we prepare for God's coming in human form with all that that means for us in our own human living and as we look back historically, as David has said, to the life that Jesus led. And as we reflect on Paul's words to the church at Philippi, it's probably going to be helpful to know a little bit about the background context in which Paul was writing his letter, as well as the reasons for writing that letter to the Christians, to see how those resonate, or not, with our own context and situation. Okay, so what sort of place was Philippi? Well, it was the leading city in the province of Macedonia, sort of north of the Aegean Sea. It was originally part of the Greek Empire, Indeed, it was a Roman colony by Paul's time. It belonged to the Roman Empire. And it had all the associated privileges that came with being a Roman colony. The city enjoyed the status of a wealthy and sophisticated centre of Roman lifestyle, culture and justice. And in about AD 50, Paul, together with his mission companions Silas and Timothy made a visit to Philippi on Paul's second missionary journey. And when they got there, they began to build a small Christian community. The early converts included a woman called Lydia, who was a wealthy local businesswoman. She welcomed Paul and Silas and Timothy into her home where they could stay. Another convert was the governor of the local jail, where Paul and Silas were briefly imprisoned. And if you want to read about that period in Paul's life and the account of his experience in Philippi, then just go to chapter 16 of Acts, which gives a detailed account of everything that happened to advance the gospel among the local population. After a period of establishing the church, Paul leaves Philippi. He goes on to other parts of the region to found other churches and to support those that already existed. And over a decade later, he finds himself in prison once again, this time in Rome, in about 61, 62 AD. He's not in jail in a cell, but he is under house arrest. So he's no longer free to travel on missionary journeys around the Mediterranean, but he has plenty of time to write letters, missionary letters, to his communities and churches that he founded or visited across Greece and in Asia Minor. And it's clear that the church at Philippi was one of his favourite places. It seems that there had grown up between Paul and the Philippian church a bond of friendship which was much closer than that which existed between Paul and any other church. And the depth of Paul's love for the Philippian church can be traced throughout his letter if we read carefully. Why was that? Well, maybe it was because this was a church that had sent him gifts of money and assistance of various sorts. So Paul's letter expresses not just prayerful affection for his friends and fellow workers in Philippi, but also his loving gratitude for all that they have done for him from praying for him, from remembering him with fondness, from sending the funds that he needed from time to time, and even sending one of their own number, Epaphroditus, to stay with Paul and to look after him. 
Another reason for writing is that Paul wants to encourage the community of Christians in Philippi as they face opposition and even persecution in a pressured and hostile environment. He writes to encourage them to stand firm and to rejoice in God regardless of the circumstances that they find themselves confronting just as he himself does. As I thought about this church at Philippi, of which Paul was so fond, I was struck by a certain parallel between the church at Philippi and Camborne Church here today. When Paul wrote his letter, the church at Philippi was more or less the same age as Camborne Church is today, certainly no more than 15 years old. Just like Camborne Church, the Philippian church had started life with just a handful of random people who came together in faith. They included a wealthy businesswoman called Lydia, a liberated slave girl, and a prison administrator and his family. Different classes, different backgrounds, different experiences, but all united in the Christian faith. Despite its small beginnings, the little community at Philippi, like Camborne, grew steadily over the following years under God's guiding hand, gradually establishing a way of being and doing that was relevant to its own time and context. And by the time Paul came to write his letter, some sort of shared leadership team had emerged of overseers and deacons. But Paul addresses his message not just to them, but to the whole people of God. He commends them all for their past faithfulness in the gospel. He looks back at what has been achieved and he encourages them amidst the present difficulties. He speaks of his thankfulness at what has been accomplished thus far and he shares his joy at what he sees as the healthy state the Philippian church seems to be in. I wonder if we can imagine Paul writing a similar letter to us here at Camborne at this point in our story. Do you think Paul would commend us in a similar way for our faithfulness as partners in the gospel from the first day until now? Do you think he would give thanks and rejoice to God as he reflects on what God has done through his spirit at work in the community of believers here in this time and place? Would Paul look at us and see a healthy church as he seems to have done with the church at Philippi? I hope and I trust that he would. But perhaps it doesn't hurt to ask ourselves such questions as a sort of reality check on where we started out 15 years ago and where we've travelled to as a church since then. Paul's positive and encouraging tone thus far to the Philippian church is important because he actually has another more difficult issue that he wants to address regarding their life together. Paul is keenly aware that the one danger that threatens the good health of the Philippian church is that of disunity. He isn't very specific about the particular focus of any such disunity. We could speculate. Perhaps 
perhaps it was something to do with the church having to change and adapt to new ways of being and doing as it grew in size and maturity from those small beginnings of 12 years previously. Or maybe there were differing opinions within the church at Philippi about how to interpret scripture or what was morally right or wrong. Perhaps there were differences of opinion about how the church should be led or about the future direction of travel. But whatever it was, it's fair to say that disunity is a danger that can threaten every healthy church in whatever age. And in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, Paul highlights three causes of disunity that he perceives as being worth noting. Firstly, selfish ambition. In other words, the danger that we work not to advance God's mission, but to advance ourselves. Secondly, Paul cautions against vain conceit. In other words, a desire for personal prestige, a desire to be admired and respected, to be known by name and sought out for our presence and our opinion. And thirdly, Paul warns against a concentration on self and a preoccupation with our own interests and agendas. Paul's letter lovingly shares a very honest and realistic analysis of what he understood might be starting to happen in Philippi. And if we're honest, it can happen in any church, in any age, and at any stage of any church's development. And I wonder if, as a church community here in Camborne, we ever sense that we too are at risk of disunity. Because if that is the case, however hard it may be, perhaps we need to ask ourselves whether we're being tempted individually or as part of a group down the road of selfish ambition or vain conceit or a preoccupation with our own personal agendas. Paul was realistic about the danger, but he wasn't despondent. He knew that there was a powerful antidote or remedy to be found in the lived example of Jesus Christ himself. And so in, his, in the second part of our reading this morning, he turns to this. And in verses 5 to 11, we see what's perhaps one of the greatest and most moving passages that Paul ever wrote about Jesus. Some scholars think that Paul drew from an existing creed that was used by the Christian church. And it may well be that it was a statement of faith in the early Christian church, not dissimilar to the statement of faith that we said earlier, which laid out who Jesus is. But I think Paul was also trying to provide a practical lived example of what true Christian living should look like. Despite the limitations of human thought and language, Paul tries to unpack for his readers in these verses the essence of who Jesus is and of the fullness of life that Jesus embodies. He explains, well, he explains the incarnation. He explains how Jesus embodies the true nature of God. He is indeed fully God. 
in equal relationship with God the Father, in control of time and creation and of all that lies beyond these in eternity. And yet, there is another side, because Jesus also willingly chose to take on a fully human nature, setting aside his divine status in order to live a fully human life. But more than that, he chose to live a life of humble service and self-giving to others, all the way to the point of experiencing a fully human death with all its pain and suffering. It's hard to get your head around it, isn't it? Fully human, yet fully divine. And the church has always acknowledged that it's a mystery that probably only God understands. Though interestingly, at the end of the previous service, somebody came up to me and she said, I've always had difficulty in trying to explain that Jesus was fully God, 100% God and 100% um, divine, 100% human as well. And somebody said to her, oh, well, I don't have a problem with it because I think of it in terms of 100% divine, 100% human, 200% hero. And I thought that's worth thinking about. So, as David said, the Christian church uses the word incarnation to refer to God coming to earth in human form, that taking on of a fully human nature. And it echoes the idea at the start of John's Gospel, when John writes of the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. And during this season of Advent, we look forward once again to celebrating the start of the incarnation that point when God entered the world as a tiny baby born in Bethlehem. But of course the incarnation is much bigger than just Jesus' initial arrival on earth as a baby. And so we also look back as the incarnation embraced the whole of the human life that Jesus lived historically as a child, as a son and a brother, as a young man growing to maturity, as a good neighbour and a professional craftsman as a teacher and a healer in his adult years and as a pilgrim making his way to the end of life's journey as a victim. The incarnation must surely also include the period of Jesus' life after the resurrection when he experienced a renewed physical body and a restored social network until the time when he could return to be with his father again restored to his rightful place as God and Lord of all that there is. So through these verses, Paul is pointing the members of the Philippian church to the incarnation, to the whole life example of Jesus as the supreme model for their own attitudes and behaviour and as the most powerful antidote against disunity. Paul pleads with them to live in harmony, to lay aside their discords, to shed their personal ambitions, their pride, their desire for prominence and prestige, and to have in their hearts that humble, selfless desire to serve, which was the essence of the life of Jesus himself. And because we're not really so very different from that church in Philippi. 
perhaps we too need to hear Paul's words challenging us in love to do the same. And as we close, perhaps we can think about using Advent, sometimes referred to as a penitential season, a season when we take the opportunity to reflect on our own being, on on our attitudes and our behaviour, and recommit ourselves to follow the Christ. Perhaps we can reflect on the extent to which we might sense ourselves to be in disunity with anyone. Perhaps we can ask God in a moment of quiet to show us what underpins that disunity and how we can be more like Jesus in our attitudes and behaviour towards them. And maybe there's a case for a conversation with someone so that we can move towards that harmony that Paul calls for that unity in Christ that God intends. I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect and then I'm going to read those verses again in a slightly different translation to conclude. To the saints in Camborne Church who are consecrated to God because of their relationship to Jesus Christ, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If the fact that you are in Christ has any power to influence you, if love has any persuasive power to move you, If you really are sharing in the Holy Spirit, if you can feel compassion and pity, complete God's joy, for his desire is that you should be in full agreement, loving the same things, joined together in soul, your mind set on the one thing. Do nothing in a spirit of selfish ambition, and in a search for empty glory. But in humility, let each consider the other better than himself. Do not be always concentrating each on your own interests, but let each be equally concerned for the interests of others. Have within yourselves the same disposition of mind as was in Christ Jesus, For he was by nature in the very form of God, yet he did not regard existence in equality with God as something to be snatched at. But he emptied himself and took the very form of a slave and became like men. And when he came in appearance as a man for all to recognize, he became obedient even to the extent of accepting death 
even the death of a cross. And for that reason, God exalted him and granted to him the name which is above every name, in order that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things upon the earth and things below the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.